Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, and welcome to my time capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and in this podcast, I ask people to tell me the five little seemingly insignificant things from their life that they would like to preserve in a time capsule. They pick four things that they cherish and one thing that they find embarrassing, unfair, or that they regret and would like to banish from their life by literally burying it in the ground. My guest this week is the actor Danny Walters, who, despite only being in his 20s, has played Tiger Dyke in 30 episodes of the long-running ITV comedy Benidorm, which is where I first met him, and Keanu Taylor in EastEnders, a performance that won him the National Television Award for Best Newcomer. Due to social distancing, I chatted to Danny remotely, so here is our conversation about his four precious things and one loathsome thing, and some other things. I hope you enjoy it. Just having a good conversation, a nice catch-up. Yeah. Uh, If only we could be having it sitting on the front at the bar with the sun. No, don't. Uh. With a pina colada. (laughs) Watching the sunset over Benidorm Beach. Happy days. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, All right. So, Danny, thank you for doing my time capsule. It's uh, lovely to see you. Thank you for having me. You're looking very well in your little isolated flat (laughs) in London. (laughs) Here I am in sunny Tunbridge Wells. We're going to talk about five things of your life that you'd like to put into a time capsule. Mm. So um, what's your first item? When you asked me to to think of a few ideas, there's... uh, you sort of try and look back in your life. I guess there's a few things that have shaped me uh, and and made me the person I am today. So I guess they've got to go in a capsule. Yeah. And uh, the first one that came to my mind was, uh, I'd say probably either a chessboard 
or mm-hmm. a backgammon board. Right. I think if I was to put a chessboard in there, uh, it's something that me and my dad, I, I love my dad to bits. Um, and sometimes, I think with like most parents or, or most uh, relationships, sometimes you don't talk as much as you should do. But for some reason, playing chess with my dad uh, <laughs> has always been that sort of way of, of creating a conversation between us and it just bonds us together. Uh, sometimes he wins, majority of the time I win. <laughs> um, but it's just a way of bringing us sort of together. And uh, and chess as well, I love the strategy as well behind it. And there's so many different outcomes to chess. Yeah. So uh, I think I'd put that in there. But also backgammon in terms of games is definitely a, a, a backgammon board I would definitely put in there. We can have one of those ones that you flip over. Yeah, there you go. There you are. So like the sort of four in one. Yeah, that sort of thing. Like you used to go when you were a kid. <laughs> Ludo. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, that's a great idea. So that would definitely go in there. And I think backgammon for me has a place in there because I got introduced to backgammon uh, from the late Kenny Island, who was on Benidorm. And uh, Benidorm was my first big sort of TV job and very nervous because it was such a big, big job and I was such a young actor starting out in my career. And uh, I remember Kenny Island came up to me, this big Scottish personality came up to me and said, you want to play a backgammon? And I was like, huh? And I was like, I've never played. And he's like, he, he said, I'll teach you. And uh, every time between takes, I would go up to Kenny Island and say, you fancy a game of, of backgammon? And throughout the whole first time that I was on that show on Series 6, he beat me every time. Between takes, we used to play. Any opportunity that we used to play to have a go at backgammon, we did. And every time, he he beat me. Every time. And I remember, I think it was one of of the last days on set for me, uh, I beat him. And to this day... (laughs) <laughs> to this day, I don't know whether it was Kenny being very kind of him, letting me beat him, or whether I had actually just mastered his uh, his teaching. Uh, it's a lovely thought, Danny. It's a lovely way to see it, though. Yeah. It's really sweet of you to think he might have done that as a favour. I, I hope he didn't, and I hope it was my, my genuine skill and knowledge, but at the time, I don't think it was. I think it was him just having a really kind heart. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> But... You know, playing those games, that, that gave me a chance to to get to know Kenny more. And uh, I think that was just a really interesting way of bonding people together from different ages, different backgrounds. So it's, it's not just the game then. It's actually the conversation that goes on with it, the time that you spend with people while you're playing it. Definitely, definitely. And, uh, you know, I think nowadays with, with technology, with PlayStation and with Xbox... You could be playing with someone on the other side of the world. You could be playing with someone from from Thailand. You could be playing with someone from Australia, from any walks of life. And it just gives you an opportunity to bond with someone in that one given medium. So I know nothing about those things. I know nothing about gaming online at all. So do you chat while you're doing it? Yeah, I mean, it's not really my generation anymore. And I, I used to be a great like a uh, video gamer. Uh, now I sort of can't do that anymore because you have to read and get jobs and, and work and, and be productive. But um, <laughs> yeah, you, you speak to people online and you can connect. 
And sometimes there's like a group of 20 people in one chat. And uh, <laughs> it's like you're hearing voices in your head all the time because there's 20 people talking at once and it's just mayhem sometimes. But it's a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. Did your dad teach you to play chess? I think he did, actually. Yeah, I, I, I think he did. And um, he taught me all the, the basic and the essentials of what the pieces do. Mm. And then I think over the years, I think YouTube taught me after that. Since then, I've been watching so many YouTube videos of, of best strategies and best, you know, things what to do. And I used to watch the YouTube videos, and I still do now. I sometimes watch YouTube videos. And whatever I learn from the YouTube videos, I then play my dad again without telling him. And mm. I start to implement those strategies. And uh, I sort of think I've sussed him now. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, YouTube has helped me. He, he's gave me the foundations and then YouTube has, uh, yeah, helped me beyond that. It's an incredibly complicated game, though, chess. Have you seen that footage of the young, I think he's Swedish or Norwegian lad, who became world champion? Have you seen that documentary? No. Oh, no, you should look no. it up. You should look it up. There's a young bloke who, I think at about 15, was beating grandmasters and things. And, and he said when he was 15, I want to be world champion. But it took him quite a while. He got close and then he kept bottling it, as it were. He kept sort of losing his way in, in really important games and almost throwing them. Right. I mean, you say you watch YouTube videos, but he spent all day and all night just reading books on strategy and the great mm -hmm. players over the history of chess. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's always, I think, with things like chess and even like poker, the thing I've learned over the years is that it's a very mathematical game as well. And there's science behind chess and there's science behind poker. Um, and mathematical probabilities always play part in that. And so when you see these people at a top, top level, they are incredibly intelligent because of, of how their minds and brains work at such a fast pace to work out the probability of each move mm. to make that best move and to also to plan ahead um, of their moves and how that has repercussions. I mean, it's a really intelligent game. And that's what fascinates me about, about yeah. that. So I'm going to ask you the uh, the important question is, so when you say backgammon and you say poker, so do you gamble on these things as well? Well, I didn't, I didn't gamble with uh, Kenny Island because uh, I think I was very young and because I think he knew he was going to beat me. He couldn't take uh, my, my first paycheck from Benidorm from me. So um, <laughs> I think he, he didn't encourage that. But with poker, uh, definitely. Um, yeah. yeah, I think there's just something that it adds the stakes. And uh, I would say I'm, I'm definitely a gambling man. It changes the dynamic and the mindset of the game. I've played poker before when there's no money involved and people just make ridiculous bets yeah. and you can't you can't read people. And I think I don't want to say being an actor helps us with poker, but there definitely is an essence of being an actor which helps you with your poker face. Mm. And uh, I think when there's money involved, um, it does help trying to read people and and their the nuances and the little signs and the signals that they give away i try and you know psychoanalyze people whether i'm right whether i'm wrong i'm probably wrong most of the time uh, <laughs> it depends how much and, you win yeah yeah so um so yeah it's it's um 
Poker, I, I do enjoy, but only yeah, when when there's gambling involved and yeah, whiskey yeah. and a cigar. It's, it's sort of daft to play it otherwise, isn't it? It's one of those games you have mm. to have something at stake. I've played some really ridiculous poker games in my time. You know, everybody has a level at which they're going to play poker. You say, okay, you know, so it'll be it'll be a you know pound in, and then we'll go from there. But you know, don't go mad, and everybody keeps it down to a certain level. Yeah. But when you get into a game and suddenly somebody says, okay, um, yeah, I'll raise you a thousand. That's when I get up and say, well, okay, bye. Bye. <laughs> bye, everyone. Or when the car keys come out oh. or the house keys. <laughs> That's when you go, do you know what? I'm in too far. I'm in too deep here. This is my line. <laughs> it's a good job you do that, actually, then. Yeah. I mean, it is possible to think, well, actually, I could win that car. And then before you know it, you've lost your house. <laughs> yeah. mm. I, I went to Vegas um, at the beginning of this year and an incredibly fascinating place just to people watch and to, to sort of see what goes through their minds sometimes and and the amount of money that they're gambling and how quickly it goes. Mm. It's it's incredible. It's incredible. I I love a gamble and it's definitely a social thing because I know how dangerous it can be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay, then we will take a lovely chessboard. I might put you in one of those game sets, you know, like a leather-bound box. Oh, that'd be great. Got all the chess pieces. It's got the backgammon stuff lined up. And, uh, you know, I might put a pack of cards in there and some chips, just in <laughs> case you can invite someone in and, you know. Just to sweeten the pot, <laughs> as they say. <laughs> okay, that's the first thing to go into the time capsule, Danny. What's, uh, what's your second thing? If anyone knows me, knows that I, I love to go to the gym, and I love fitness. Uh, it's something that just makes me happy. So I think I would take a barbell, a barbell and some weights um, and a squat rack. So I'll take some gym equipment into there because I find fitness uh, quite an important part of my life. Um, so years ago, I used to be, uh, back when I was a teenager, I used to weigh 16 stone. Um, I used to be fairly big. That is big. Obese, yeah. And uh, it's uh, it's something that I've gone from one extreme, I guess, to the other. And I think now for fitness, I just see the benefits of of what it can give someone. And uh, and yeah, when I when I weighed sixteen stone, the thought of going to a gym, exercising, I just hated it. And I used to eat so much. Uh, I used to, <laughs> I remember I used to go to school and I used to sit in class and I used to have a packet of family size Haribo in my school blazer. And throughout the class, I used to just pick, pick and I used to just eat nonstop. So yeah, I'm glad that I'm glad I've changed that around over the years. And so that would definitely be a thing that I'd put into the, the, the capsule because I can't not work out now. As you can see in the background, I've got <laughs> a barbell sitting there in my, in yeah. my living room. <laughs> Both of those things are something that you have to dedicate yourself to, to a certain extent, aren't they? Oh, yeah. I, I guess I was a competitive eater then. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I sort of watch all like these, these videos on YouTube and on uh, like man versus food and stuff like that. And there's now like a proper trend now for people who can competitively eat. And I look at that, I'm like, I've done that. Yeah. You know, that's, that's easy. Yeah, that was no trouble at all. Yeah. You try lifting some weights. <laughs> <laughs> that's the hard part. I mean, I, I know what you're like because uh, 
there are pictures of you with your top off all over the place, <laughs> as it were. And I don't, yeah. I don't blame you. If I had a, a body like yours, I'd take my top off all the time. It was just <laughs> a one period of my life where I looked like that. And it was when I was doing a play, and the play involved a lot of uh, lifting and carrying. Mm. And so we, we sort of used to warm up by lifting and carrying and lifting weights and everything. And mm. suddenly I, I got a bit pumped up and, you know, got the old six-pack and everything. <laughs> and but as soon as I finished, you know, I just started drinking beer, eating peanuts. <laughs> it didn't last. Yeah, it's that cliche thing, isn't it, for theatre for us, where people say they end up shedding the weight when they do panto, when they do musicals, when they do plays, because we're we're doing the same thing twice a day sometimes yeah. under such hot lights for multiple hours of the day moving. So you know, naturally because of our increase in energy output, we're going to be burning so many more calories. Mm. So sometimes I do look forward to doing theatre if it means me losing a few more pounds. It's, it's quite Yeah, nice. I think I've relied on the work to keep my weight down. <laughs> you, know. you make sure it's in the contract. It's <laughs> <laughs> if it ever stops, I'm going to be in big trouble. I'll be the size of a house. I tell you, maybe now we're in lockdown. What am I doing? Yeah, good luck. Good luck. <laughs> Oh, so um, how many hours a day would you need to exercise then to keep in shape? Uh, I don't know. I, I guess for me, it's, it's all depends on my goals and, and, and what I'm trying to achieve. And I think with any character that I play, I always think about, well, first of all, what would that character look like? Mm. Um, and then I think, you know, what would their diet be? How much would they be able to train? So right now I'm maintaining a healthy-ish size where I can maintain, I can enjoy some of the foods I can enjoy, I can still train. At the moment I'm training six days a week, which seems like a lot, but that's an hour a day and I break up my training. Mm -hmm. But if I've got to play a character who has to be really skinny then I manipulate my calories. I go into a calorie deficit. I do more cardio. It all depends. Or if I have to play a soldier who has to be much more fitter, then I, I will adapt my training to what mm. they would be going through and how I can change my body. And I guess being in this industry as well, you've, you've always got to maintain a certain look as well because we are judged within the first five seconds of walking into that audition room. And... I think, you know, for me, it's that's why I take fitness quite serious. But it, you've always struck me, in all the times that I've known you, you're not a vain person. You're not a person who, who does this simply because you want everybody to admire you. This is about mm -hmm. looking right for the job. Completely, completely. Um, yeah, I don't think I've ever done it as a, a look-at-me way. Um, I try not to think that's, you know why I train to have the best abs. And uh, for me, there's a much deeper reason behind why I train and why I want to look healthy because it's not, it's not about being physically healthy for me. A massive part of it is being mentally healthy. Yeah. And uh, I think for me is that uh, by training, it, um, I, I think it helps me to push myself forward and to only get better for myself and I think because I used to weigh 16 stone, because I used to be big, uh, there is a massive motivation behind what I do and, and the way I train mm. because I never want to go backwards. I never want to go back to my old self. And so it only fuels me to go forward 
And over the years of, of training, uh, of weightlifting, of, of learning about fitness, I can now apply that to what I do here in, this, in, in the acting industry, yeah. where it, I can just adapt it to, to different roles. Yeah. What, what, what actually do you think turned you around then? Because in a way, everybody knows this. Everybody knows that if I do this, I will get fit. Mm, mm. You know? So what motivates somebody, particularly a young man, to do something like that, to change their ways, as it were, to stop eating the Haribo and to start lifting weights? Um, I think for me, it's, it's a constant battle uh, in terms of, you know, everyone wants to eat the Haribo, everyone, and I do occasionally, I definitely do. But I think for me, the biggest motivator is, so years ago, I was, um, I was on holiday with my brother, and uh, I've, I've always idolised my brother. My older brother, he, you know, he's my best friend, but he was always the athletic one. He was always the sporty one, the good-looking one. He was always the one who always gets the girls. And there's me, the, the younger, uh, funny, fat guy who, um, who was into musical theatre. And so I, didn't, I was always in the shadows, I guess. And we was on holiday, once and my brother was talking to these two girls at the time on the sun lounges and I walk out and I'm like hey <laughs> and then they turn around and they're like oh my god who's this ugly fat guy oh my god and I, I was like whoa and then my brother was like hey like that's my brother that's that's really harsh anyway I I start crying and, and run off and I'm like oh my god I'm so chubby I'm so fat and this is not what I want people to see me mm. as is the funny fat guy which is such a stereotype. Um, and so I was like, I, I'm sort of done with that. And then at the time I was like, I, I, I want girls to love me. I want girls to like me. <laughs> so I, I think at the time when I was younger, I think that was probably the reason why I made that change. Like I remember even at the time, a doctor told me, if you carry on eating this way and, and not training and carry on getting bigger, you know, you're going to have a heart attack at some point because you're really, really big at your age. Mm. Um, but that didn't stop me. That, you know, a doctor telling me to change didn't stop me. Getting girls, I guess, <laughs> I guess changed me at, at that time when I was younger. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Although some people in that situation, certainly young people in that situation, the decision will be, okay, uh, right, I'm really big. Uh, I need to become funnier. <laughs> <laughs> Well, obviously, my jokes were a bit poor at the time. So, <laughs> uh, but musical theatre, surely, you know, all the girls love a boy who'll do musical theatre. If only boys realise that, I bet they're laughing now. Yeah, <laughs> thinking, oh no, look, it's the fat boy. Look what he's done to himself. <laughs> yeah, it's the fat boy from Tenerife. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I think for me at the time, it was definitely a um, a big motivator. Mm. That was the, the pivotal moment that made me change. Yeah, and you've sort of fallen in love with it. But yeah, but now I fall, exactly, and now I fall in love with, with, with fitness. And as well, I've now got to the stage where it's how far I can push my body mentally and physically. And uh, two years ago, I was involved in a charity event called Rat Race. And we raised some money for Children with Cancer UK. And we raised a lot of money. 
And the obstacle course, the event, the the race was, it was a 20-mile run Mm. with 200 obstacles along the way. Oh, my word. And these obstacles were extreme obstacles. So it was like you would would submerge yourself in in a tank full of ice to get through. That's one obstacle. And then another obstacle would be you'd have to run through a cage full of electrical vaults hanging down where you'd get stung and you'd fall to... Like, it would be extreme sort of military type of training. And it's one of those things where it's such an extreme event and it's it's about pushing yourself physically and mentally to get to that goal, to get to the end. And I think another reason why I do it is because when you're raising money for charity, you want people to donate and you want to put yourself through some sort of pain. Not pain, but you want to push yourself to your extremes Mm. uh, because people have donated their their hard-earned money Mm. to go to a good cause. So um, I'm thinking, I'm debating, I need to speak to my agents, but I'm thinking of doing an event next year. It's a triathlon. I think it's like a 200-mile bike ride, a a marathon, and a four-mile swim, I think it is. My daily exercise routine. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So I want to maybe try and do that next year and and raise some money for charity. And I think with what's going on right now with COVID-19, I think a lot of people will be affected. So I think I will try and do something next year to help anyone who's been affected from this this year. Well, there you are, you see. So it did work then. You, uh, You certainly sorted out your mental state. Well done. All right, well, I'm going to put in a lovely, lovely set of weights and bars and a bench. Beautiful. Why not? Let's have it. Okay. <laughs> They're going into the time capsule. That's two items we put in. So uh, so what's your third item, Dan? Right, we're going to take a short break here for either some adverts or a slight pause before I say welcome back. Let's see, shall we? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed either the ad or the embarrassing pause. 
Right, let's find out what the next thing is that Danny Waters would like to put in his time capsule. A third item, I had to think about this, and uh, when I was thinking about my school days, there was a teacher called Mrs. Burns. I want to put her in the time capsule. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> For a good reason or bad reason? Oh, all good reason. With oxygen, so that way she can survive in there. Um, and if she listens to this podcast, I don't think I've ever told her this and nobody really knows this, um, but a big appreciation to her because um, back in school, I was, like most teenagers, you go through your rebellion years where you get into a lot of trouble, you hang around with the people you shouldn't be hanging around with. And... Um, I was going down quite a, a bad path. And uh, because being 16 stone, being obese, uh, I used to get bullied quite often. And uh, when I was younger, I was like, do you know what? How do, I, how do I get around being bullied? And I remember at the time when I was young, I was like, the way around that is by hanging around with the hard kids and the tough kids. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, most of the tough kids and the hard guys were smokers back then. And uh, so I was like, okay, well, how can I get involved with the smokers? And I remember I went on holiday once and my parents do not know this. <laughs> Nobody knows this. And mum and dad, I do apologise if I brought shame to you. <laughs> but I remember I, remember I, I purchased a packet of Mayfair cigarettes, like a packet of like 20 packets yeah, in yeah, one yeah. sort of package. Um, and I bought them, don't know how, don't ask how, but they served me and they, they gave me the cigarettes. I think it was Tenerife somewhere. And I put them in my suitcase. My mum and dad didn't know, but I remember it was a way of me getting to know the hard guys who were smokers. And so I remember I used to take these cigarettes into school in my backpack and, you know, I was such a naughty little shit, really, (laughs) looking back. And I used to sell cigarettes 50p for one or three for a pound. But sometimes I'd, to the hardest guys in my year, I would give them, a f- you know, a few free cigarettes every now and then just to keep them sweet. And so what I then became, I then started to become a part of this sort of mafia, really, where I was, I got taken <laughs> in and, and they started to appreciate me and I, I started to hang around with the hard guys. And I remember it was my, it was my form tutor, Miss Burns, and I think she could sort of start to see this. And I was on report cards all the time. But also at the same time, she saw that I had a massive love for musical theatre. Mm-hmm. I had a massive love for drama, for music. And at the time, I, I guess she saw that possibility in me. She brought me into a class once. Uh, it was just me and her. And she sat me down and she she just told it to me, straight and she was like you have such a great opportunity ahead of you you can go down this way or you can go down that way and I don't know what it was because me and Mrs Burns I just she was just a form tutor um I have a lot of amazing people in my life my parents uh my you know mentors at the time my friends people I looked up to and no matter what they said to me I guess it just wasn't going through but for some weird reason this teacher Mrs Burns just got through to me I don't know what it was. And it stuck to me to this day where that conversation I had with her just made me see things completely different. Mm. And I was like, wow, you know, this one person could have such a massive impact on someone's life. 
And I don't know what it was. Often in those situations, it's because people don't want to be the person they're turning into. They're doing it for a reason, yeah. but they don't like it. Yeah. I think also when you're young, you try and find, when you're in school, there's that sort of pack mentality where you try and find your the hierarchy. You try and find where you belong. And I guess it was a way of me trying to find my position. But actually, with what we do, where we, where we can act and we can sing and we can get on stage, that is such a powerful medium in itself. Mm that I don't know why I never saw that back when I was younger. Yeah. Because when I used to get up on stage and sing and dance and act, that would have a massive impact on people. And that was a way of me showing what I could do. So I don't know why I was going down that path. No. Maybe it was insecurity at the time. Maybe it was just, I have no idea. But this teacher, Mrs. Burns, just said, listen, you have such a great future ahead of you if you go down this path and believe in yourself a little bit and stop getting involved with <laughs> with the smokers and you know yeah and uh, so I think that conversation really helped and nobody knows like nobody really knows that it was just something that was really personal to me how, how old is Mrs Burns well, I don't know you were a kid so she would appear just a grown-up she was just yeah she was just when I was a child she was just old <laughs> <laughs> But, you think she's probably only about 30? Uh, probably. <laughs> no, no. I, I think Mrs. Burns was, was late 50s, I think she oh, was. Right. And yeah. she was, um, yeah, she's a beautiful soul. And uh, she had a massive impact on my life. Mm. And, there's, you know, there's been many people along the way who's shaped me and helped me and guided me from drama teachers to singing teachers to my parents. But I think... Mrs. Burns, for some weird reason, she just stands out where that was a pivotal moment in my life. Mm. And it's a difficult thing being in that group, isn't it? Because quite often people think that a bully is a very different animal to the person who's being bullied, as it were. But the reality is that they're a very small step away, that quite often people become bullies because they're frightened of being bullied. So in a way, you were the boy that was being picked on. And in order to survive that, you joined in with the people who had been doing the bullying. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. It's not until you sort of go, you step back, you go, wow, that's, that's a really toxic position to be in. Yeah. When you're younger, you just don't really have the intelligence to go, what am I doing here? Or just experience. Yeah. Just experience to see it, to see what's happening to you and to realise that actually you can stop it. Mm. So about what age did you then suddenly go, okay, I'm going to do musical theatre, I'm going to get up on stage and that will define me. That's the thing that will make me the person, not the man with the fags. I think for me, my love of of, of storytelling, of, of musical theatre, of, of acting, of singing, um, it happened when... I always wanted to be a footballer when I was younger. My older brother uh, is a great football player. Growing up, I idolised him. It was a bit tough because I used to have asthma attacks because I used to be so big. <laughs> and, and my beautiful mum turned around and said, listen, she goes, maybe we shouldn't do football. Maybe we should do mus musical theatre. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was like, no, mum, I, I want to play football. It's what my friends do. It's what the boys do. It's what my brother does. I, I want to be a lad. I want to play football. And she goes, maybe just give musical theatre a try. Anyway, she kept going on and on and on. I said, you know what? Just uh, 
shut her up, I guess. <laughs> at, the, at the age that I was, I was like, do you know what? I'm just going to go to this musical theatre class on a Saturday, a Saturday school. And so I went to one class just to make her happy. And uh, I kept going back and back. And then there was this one time where my best friend now, a friend called James Hunter, who's now a producer and a writer, he joined the Saturday school and I had to be his mentor. I had to sort of show him around. And it was from that day, I then started to go, actually, I, I really want to start going back now to this drama school. And it wasn't to go back to, to learn how to tap dance or how to sing or how to act. It was to go back just to be with my best friend. Mm. And then there was a time when I played, quite ironically, I played Fat Sam in Bugsy Malone. <laughs> <laughs> that was my first breakout theatre role, I guess. Yeah. And um, I was on stage playing Fat Sam singing uh, Bad Guys. Uh, we could have been anything that we wanted to be, that song. And we, was, we got to the end of the song and I just remember all like the parents and the audience just started going crazy and started clapping and, and cheering. And I remember that feeling of going, wow. Like, what I've just done has had this sort of, uh, this impact. And I was like, wow, that's such a powerful thing mm. to, to be able to do that mm. and to to make people laugh, to make people cry. And then from there, it was just a a world of exploring acting and, and singing. And yeah. Have you had the chance to do musical theatre professionally? Not on a West End. No, no not on a West End. No. Not yet. Um, yeah, that's to come, Dan. <laughs> I went to go and see Phantom of the Opera and I was just fascinated by the music, the storytelling, the characters. It was incredible. Mm. And I waited at stage door to see the guy who played the Phantom, Ramin Karimlo, uh, right, I believe yeah. I'm saying his second name correct, uh, who is incredibly talented. Mm. And he was, he came at stage door and I was like, oh my God, you're amazing, blah, blah. I was such a young guy. I was like, you know, you're amazing. I idolised the Phantom. You're so good. I was like, I'd love to play the Phantom one day, um, but I'm not an opera singer. I remember Ramin said, he said, neither am I. I'm not a opera singer. I'm a rock singer. Mm. So there, there is a chance for you. And I was like, wow. I looked at my mum and I was like, mum, one day I'm going to play the Phantom. <laughs> Oh, I'm going to come and see it when you do. I'll be there. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think I think for me, I think that was really when I fell in love with, with musical theatre at the time. But it's quite interesting. My, my career has predominantly been in, in television. Yeah. So um, I think it's definitely, you know, even though I love musical theatre, you have to change quotations here. The method is the same. Mm. But I think the the approach and and how we do it is completely different. So working in television is a completely different way of working. Yeah. I, I, I miss musical theatre and it's always going to be there. And, but uh, at the moment, my career just seems to be in television. And Yeah, at the moment. But I think that you will experience through your career all these different things because you don't hang on to things. So you've got this role in Benidorm. It's a great role. And you left it mm. and you moved on. And he went on for something else. And that becomes EastEnders. Other people would think, great, I'm going to be fine. Mm -hmm. But you're quite happy to do two, three years of something and then say, okay, that's enough of that. I'll go and find something else. It's a brave thing to do. Uh, yeah, I think, as my dad would say, foolish. <laughs> it's a very <laughs> foolish thing to do. Um, 
But I, I, I think, I guess it's probably such a cliche thing to say, but I try to chase the character and to also chase the journey of that character. And I do believe that every character has a shelf life maybe, mm-hmm. or maybe a character has a start, a middle and an end to any journey. And so I feel like once I've taken a character to a certain level, I there's nothing else I can do with that character. But also, I guess selfishly for me, there's nothing else I could learn from that character or from that job. Mm. I've been extremely lucky to to have worked on Benidorm, to have worked on EastEnders. And I've learned so much from the people I work with, yourself, prime example. Well, don't do it like that. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, just many great people you work with and, and people who've also been in the business for, for many, many years. And you go, how are they doing it? And I watch them, I go, ah, that's how they're doing it. I remember these conversations. I remember being impressed. You were always willing to sit there and let us talk bollocks. <laughs> that that would probably be the, the, the pina colada or the, the gins <laughs> that, that we'd had on had in Benidorm. <laughs> probably, yeah. At two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Very true. Uh, <laughs> Mrs. Burns, God bless her. Well done, Mrs. Burns. I, I hope she does. Yeah, thanks, Mrs. Burns. I hope she does hear this because actually, you know, I mean, I think those teachers are very important. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to put her in there as long as she doesn't take her husband who runs that nuclear power station in The Simpsons. <laughs> that's number three okay we've got two to go danny we've got one that you treasure still and one that you you'd quite like to bury so it's up to you whether you want to get that out the way now yeah let's let's get the bury let's 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 get the negative one out yeah why not this one was uh a personal thing Mm -hmm. i guess for me self-doubt has to go in there right we all have it uh, we will have self-doubt and every single person does. But I think in especially the entertainment industry, uh, you get a job and you go, how the hell am I going to do this? And I'm not good enough. And there's that, that voice in your head. Uh, it's a negative voice that sometimes paralyzes you from sometimes doing the best that you can in the job. It's always been there uh, and I've always recognized it and I've always listened to it. But it's such a waste of time. Mm. It's such a waste of time because I end up doing the job. I end up really enjoying it. Uh, a lot of people say I, I do a great job in that. And, you know, so I guess a lot of the time it's such a wasted bit of energy. Yeah, you've already got the job. So they must believe you can do it. It's a weird thing. It's such a weird thing. And, and I, I think I'm not alone, especially in the acting world where, you know, and, and you go on set and you go, how can I do this? Well, how am I, how have I got here? Mm. And sometimes I think they're actually going to find out this is all just a massive lie, and this, I can't actually <laughs> I can't actually do this, and I'm just blagging my way through this. But that's that's that self doubt, mm. that negative voice in my head at times. It just yeah, it's just such a waste of, of time. Yeah. Um, but you must be quite good at auditions, but or do you just do a lot and then? Oh, Michael, I cannot. If there's any casting directors out here, like. I, I still will do a, a fantastic job and I will still try and de- deliver the best that I can for that character. But I cannot stand auditions. Nobody can. The anxiety that I get from auditions, yeah. they're horrible. You spend so much time prepping yeah. and you prep for, for weeks 
So yeah, that's if you have weeks. Sometimes you only have like a day to prep for that audition. Mm. And then you go in with all that prep. And then two minutes later, thank you, Danny will be in touch. And then it's, it's gone. gone. I, uh, I listened to an uh, interview with Brian Cranston, who plays Walter White in yeah. Breaking Bad. Incredible, talented actor. And he put it so bluntly. He said, the only control you have is when you're acting in that audition. That's the only control you have. And you go in there showing them the best that you can do with that character. And then the rest of it is irrelevant and out of your control. And I remember I then adopted that to, to my auditioning process. And I was like, do you know what? I'm going to go in giving the best that I can do. And if I don't get cast because my eyebrows are a certain colour or my hair is a certain length, I just focus on the character and what I believe that character is meant to be, show them that. And I, can, I could have got it completely wrong. Uh, but... At least that way it's uh, you sort of stick with your integrity and you stick with your interpretation of, of that character. Yeah, and that sort of dedication and, in fact, intelligence will always stand you in good stead, I think. And we shall banish self-doubt. It's gone. Uh-huh. So let's put that in the time capsule. And there you are. Yeah, yeah. Well, you'll be in Hollywood by the end of next year. <laughs> okay, we've got one more item to go to the time capsule then. My motorcycle. <laughs> which I do believe my agents know that I do have a motorbike and I have a motorcycle. Whether they're happy or not about that, probably not, because <laughs> it's such a dangerous thing to be riding. But uh, the feeling of being on two wheels on the open is just an amazing feeling. And it's quite interesting because before I started EastEnders, my goal was to always ride Route 66 in America. And that's always been when I went up from a young age, I've always had the vision, the dream of just cruising on a Harley Davidson <laughs> down Route 66 with the Hells Angels, you know. Selling them cigarettes. Yeah, yeah for protection. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, it's always been my vision, my dream. And so I was like, okay, well, if that's what I want to do when I get older, I'm going to have to learn to ride a motorcycle. But when you're busy filming all the time, you don't have the chance to to learn. And also the contracts that we have when we're filming, there's a clause that says you cannot skydive, you cannot scuba dive, you cannot rock climb, you cannot motorcycle. Well, I do all of those. (laughs) (laughs) I, I literally do all of those. So anytime I do a job, I just have to put all of those hobbies on hold. And I remember that I came out of Benidorm. I was just, after many, many years, I was contract free. And I was like, oh my God, I'm, wow, this is actually quite a nice feeling because I could actually start to do some of the hobbies that I, what I want to do. So I was like, perfect, I'm going to learn to r- ride a motorcycle. So I paid for the uh, motorcycling course. Perfect, paid for it. I've got my first lesson in a couple of weeks. Perfect. I audition for EastEnders oh, and no. <laughs> that next week I get cast in EastEnders. No. So I'm like, I'm like, you're kidding me. So yeah, so I had to postpone that, that uh. to learning to ride, my, do, do my course. And so I was in EastEnders for three years and then towards the end of it, I was like, yes, this is the perfect time now. So, um, so yeah, I finally got round to, to learning to ride a bike and, uh, and now it's the one of the best feelings in the world mm. where you can just 
go out on the bike. And uh, so that vision of riding Route 66 is, is getting slowly getting closer. So you've not done it yet then? Not yet, not, not yet. yet. Uh, so I've never ridden a motorbike. I did once own a moped uh, when I was a student. In fact, uh, a man sold it to me at 11.30 at night. We were both drunk. And he said, well, go and try it out. So I did, <laughs> like an idiot. And I got to the, I got to a roundabout, the first roundabout, going too fast, and I slid off it. Uh, no. Yeah, straight under a police car. Oh, wow. And the policeman got <laughs> out and said, you all right, son? I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, oh, blimey, your bike's a bit scratched. I said, oh, it's not mine yet. Oh, <laughs> I'm not even insured in it. I wasn't insured. And I was. <laughs> he said to me, right, I'll take your details. But he said, um, I'm not going to breathalyze you. I went, thank you very much, officer. <laughs> <laughs> See, it's, it's people like you. Mm. That's the reason why I pay so much money with my premiums <laughs> and my insurance. It's because of people like you. Oh, come on, man. I was 19. I was a student. I wanted to be able to get to see my girlfriend. To be fair, I was I was selling fags when I was younger and being a little shit. So, you know, we all have our past. But I think I learned my lesson. I did drive that moped around for a while, but I've, I've never driven a motorbike. I've never had one. My father had a cartilage operation when he was about 50. And I remember visiting him in hospital. And we walked down the ward and all the beds were full of young men. And he was at the end with his leg up. And I said, you're the oldest person in here by miles. He said, yeah. I'm the only person who doesn't ride a motorbike. Oh, wow. Uh, wow. Mm. I'm sure it's much safer now, Danny. And I'm sure you're a yeah. very good motorcyclist. It's definitely that thing where it gives you such a great feeling of freedom. And I must admit, right now with what's going on, I'm itching to get back on that bike just to get on the road again. Mm. But yeah, I think that's that's my last thing that I'd put into the time capsule yeah. is the motorbike, just to feel that wind on your on your skin when you're on big open highways. Fantastic. So we're going to put your bike. What is your bike? So my bike is a Kawasaki ER6F. Yeah, I know all about motorbikes, so that means a lot to me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, do you know what? This time capsule is quite a magical thing because you can put anything you like in it. So if I'm going to, just for you, I think actually I should put a Harley in. Oh, I'll give you a really long straight road as well that just goes off. In, <laughs> and you can just sit just a couple it. of miles in the capsule. With a sort of, you know, over the brow of the hill. And you can imagine that it goes on right across America. Beautiful. No speed cameras, no nothing. Just in that capsule, just one mile straight. Yeah, That'd be yeah. beautiful. If you could do that for me, I'd appreciate that. I will do it for you. It's in there, Danny. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much for doing Thank this. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You have been listening to My Time Capsule. With me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Danny Walters. You can subscribe to this podcast to stream all episodes for free on Acast or your own favourite podcast provider. And if you have the time, we'd really appreciate it if you could rate us and write a short review. Thank you. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook, if you like, for all the latest about My Time Capsule. You just search at MyTCPod. Or you can follow me, if you want to, at Fenton Stevens or at Mike Fenton Stevens. It varies according to Twitter or Instagram, but you can find me. My Time Capsule is a cast-off production. The producer was John Fenton Stevens, and the music was by Past the Peas Music. Thank you very much for listening. See you again soon. Bye.